0: you're about to watch a great interview on tyt interviews if you want to watch them live members are the only ones who get to do that tytnetwork.com slash join become a member enjoy the interviews as they happen
1: hi tyt it's katie halper i'm really excited to be talking to assad hater who is a writer he's a founding editor of viewpoint magazine and he's the author of a book brand spanking new mistaken identity race and class in the age of trump which i've definitely as you can see Read. Uh, It's a great book, and you have some really uh, provocative things to say, which is always fun. So, welcome, Asad.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Katie.
1: Hi. Um, So, I'm going to start with a really, really hardball question, which is why did you write this book?
0: Well, I wrote this book because uh, I kept encountering a kind of impasse or deadlock on the left, which is that people treat race and class as separate and opposed problems. And there's a whole tradition of uh, radicals in the United States who saw race and class as inseparable. And that's the kind of um, tradition that I encountered and was politicized by and I think is really relevant for today. And the fact that it's forgotten in these discussions that turn it into an opposition is, a, is just a real shame. So uh, part of the purpose of the book is to revive that.
1: So why and how has it been suppressed?
0: Well. Uh, some of the ways it's been suppressed is that uh, organizations like, let's say, the Black Panther Party or others that came after it are represented and appropriated in a way that suppresses their class politics, in a way that leaves their class politics out. It leaves out the fact that they saw themselves as part of a global revolution against capitalism. And um, a lot of people who are in uh, more privileged positions or in elite positions in the United States. Um, want to uh, call on that kind of legitimacy, on the, on the uh, brand name of the Black Panther Party, while suppressing the threat that they pose to their elite positions and to the economic equality they benefit from.
1: Mm. Um, so one of the, the terms that's kind of essential to this discussion is identity politics. Can you shed some light on what that means?
0: Yeah. Well, so I think first of all that when people talk about identity politics it it becomes a kind of empty term because people fill it with whatever meaning they want to bring to it and with whatever kind of political agenda they want to bring to it. Um, and it's become a big point of discussion now uh, following the 2016 Democratic primaries in which, um, was, was it 2016? Yeah. yeah I, Okay, it's so... Suppressed memory. thing of suppression. Suppressed yeah. uh, memory, yeah. So, I mean, Bernie Sanders came to represent class politics, economic inequality, whereas Hillary Clinton was the candidate who supposedly was the only one who cared about racial and sexual discrimination, and that got equated with identity politics. Identity politics is when you care about these other issues, and uh, if you care about economic inequality, you probably don't care about those other issues. Uh, but, that's a really ahistorical and kind of uh, distorted way of looking at things. The origin of the term is with a group called the Combahee River Collective, which was a, uh, an organization of mainly black lesbians who were involved in various different kinds of social movements. They were involved in the feminist movement, or the women's liberation movement as it was called at the time, uh, the anti-war movement, the black liberation movement, and the socialist and labor movements. and They said, look, in all of these movements we find that our particular identity which is really specific and has all of these different specific uh, traits and specific forms of oppression that we're subject to gets excluded by the single issue kind of agenda of these different organizations. So if we organize autonomously and we assert our identities, that means that we break up that kind of structure of exclusion that's holding these different movements back. It means that that, um, we make it possible to have a movement that's about the liberation of everyone. So if black women get free, then we all get free. And that's why the uh, recent republication of their collective statement, uh, edited by Kianga Yamada-Taylor, along with a lot of interviews with founding members, it's called How We Get Free, because it's about how everyone can get free. And uh, what that meant for their politics was that they were always building coalitions. They were building coalitions with uh, feminist movements for reproductive rights. They were building coalitions uh, with uh, striking construction workers, and now identity politics has been turned into a way that my identity makes me separate from everyone else, and that is a total reversal of what they intended.
1: Yeah, it's a betrayal, right? I that. think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, I, I feel like the way that people who are on the kind of Hillary side of this divide, and I know we have to get beyond the primaries, but it did expose a, a real rift that's still there, but people who use the word identity politics in a way to criticize, let's say, the Bernie people, they, their definition of identity politics is like identity except for class. Or when they talk about intersectionalism, which we can talk about intersectionality, it's intersectionality except for class. And it reminds me of this term progressive except on Palestine. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, they're, they're, they're these you can't really be that without having the other part in it. Like you can't actually be an intersectionalist. You can't actually be someone who embraces identity politics if you omit a large part of people's identity.
0: Well, I think that, you know, um, the Combi River Collective proposed the term identity politics for a very specific context with a very specific goal. And there's no need to cling to it mm. in an entirely different political context when it's been taken up to mean something that's the opposite of the political agenda that they had. So, you know, some people want to speak about a radical identity politics and, uh, you know, uh, a moderate identity politics or something like that. I think we don't need the term anymore. So we we don't need need to reappropriate it. Yeah. What we need is their legacy of, of, which is one almost of disrupting identities more than it is about claiming a fixed one.
1: Right. Because as you said, the point is coalitions, not kind of separate. movements. That is a tricky balance, right, because how do you make sure that people's needs are represented or people feel like they're spoken to in a way that doesn't fragment movements?
0: Yeah, well, coalitions are necessarily between different organizations. I mean, coalitions mean that you uh, approach a group which is doing something different, which has different goals and different means of achieving them, and you say, let's work together and let's let's allow ourselves to affect each other and change each other. And that's, that's how politics really happens. I think that's, I think, the lesson of the great successful uh, liberation movements of the 20th century.
1: So can you talk about the history? You, you just explained the origin of the term identity politics. Can you talk about the history of the left? And um, I guess, I guess the, the 2016 primary really put out this the idea that socialism or leftism, uh, is the kind of exclusive domain of straight white men. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the history of racial justice and um, anti-racist organizing that mm-hmm. existed, uh, for instance, in the Communist Party mm-hmm. or in other areas of the left?
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, it's interesting to note that the Socialist Party and the Communist Party were composed, and and the Industrial Workers of the World, for example, which became a big part of the Communist Party, uh, were composed largely of immigrants. Right. and. Um, immigrants were slowly absorbed into this this social construct which we call whiteness, the white race. Uh, And I have a part in my book about the invention of the white race which is the term uh, of Theodore Allen. Uh, But um, the Communist Party especially came to realize that whiteness and white chauvinism as they called it was a major threat to organizing the working class because uh, it introduced a fundamental division between um, black workers who were super exploited, who were subject to an extremely high level exploitation because of the legal and violent forms of coercion that were added to the exploitation of of the workplace, and that white workers, uh, despite their exploitation, had been granted certain privileges that made them think that they were uh, above uh, this other level of, of exploitation, and therefore, weren't joining in solidarity with others in a movement that could challenge the collective enemy, which was the bosses. Right. And so they started to organize specifically on the question of race. They organized anti-lynching movements, armed defense against lynching. Uh, they were part of the. They, they led the defense of, uh, uh, Scotts- not, the, the Scots in the Scottsboro campaign of uh, nine young black men who were falsely accused of rape. Um, they, they organized some of the first integrated social gatherings in northern cities and they called for uh, the self-determination of what they called the, the Negro nation in the South, in the Black Belt, uh, which was a way of, you know, that's something that gets ridiculed a lot because, you know, the race is not a nation or something like that. Both of these categories are social constructs. Right. It's not like one of them is more obviously uh, real than the right. other. But uh, the point of doing that was to connect the uh, oppression of black people in the United States with a global revolution against colonialism. And um, so they put that issue front and center uh, for for a significant period. Um, And unfortunately, as the Communist Party grew more and more conservative over the years, that was dropped. But they laid the groundwork, um, a large part of the groundwork, that would be utilized later on in the civil rights movement. Um, so, that, that, that legacy is fundamental. It, it, it stretches through the 20th century.
1: And even the way the civil rights movement is presented really emphasizes certain values and tendencies and um, strategies over others, and it's very whitewashed.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, you have to look at the civil rights movement in a much longer perspective. It didn't just start with the Montgomery bus boycott. Because earlier than that, there was what um, the historian Jacqueline Dowd-Hall calls a, a civil rights unionism. Um, and that was about um, a kind of agenda that, w- that involved um, jobs for all, full employment, fair wages, uh, um, housing justice, and, all, and things like that, alongside the demands to end legal segregation. And the figures like A. Philip Randolph, who is one of the major organizers of the 1963 March on Washington were involved in this kind of thing since the 1940s. And then when you look at the, um, uh, the classic kind of phase of the Civil Rights Movement that we're all familiar with, the one that starts in 55 and basically goes until 65, um, it always had this kind of uh, radical dimension of talking about poverty from the beginning. Uh, I mean, when, if you read the writings of Martin Luther King, um, as early as the, uh, the second half of the 50s, he's talking about this. He's talking about poverty. And he's also making the connection to the world outside of the United States. Um, and, and a lot of people talk about how Martin Luther King, the last year of his life, uh, April 4th, 1967 through April 4th, 1968 was really right. quite radical because on April 4th, 1967, he gave a speech against the Vietnam War in which he said that there were the three evils of American society which were militarism, capitalism and racism and... Uh, Up here
1: at Riverside Church in Yeah, Manhattan.
0: exactly. Uh, and you know... Uh, and, 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 af- and at that point he was involved in organizing the Poor People's Campaign and when he was shot he was in Memphis uh, trying to support the strike of sanitation workers, and he really, was, you know, that that really came to the forefront in the last year of his life, but it was always there uh, in varying ways. And you know, he was, as his learning process continued, as he was uh, involved in activism and learning from the new kinds of uh, political events of the period. But but right at the beginning, he made the connection to the Indian independence movement with, with uh-huh. Gandhi. And everybody knows right. that he gets the right. philosophy of nonviolence right, right, right. from Gandhi, but it's also a way of connecting the struggle of black people in the United States to the struggle of Indians against British colonialism. He, was all, he always had that awareness.
1: Yeah that's, yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of it, I just thought of the nonviolence aspect. Yeah. But yeah, of course, there's the uh, internationalist exactly. anti colonial aspect. Um, can you talk about your own identity and how it's changed or how your understanding of your identity has changed over time?
0: Yeah, for that I have to quote the great theorist of identity, Stuart Hall, who said, identity is not about returning to your roots, R-O-O-T-S, but about coming to terms with your roots, R-O-U-T-E-S. And I think that's what identity is about. It's not a fixed thing. It's about all the different roots and movements that we have had over time. So I could go back and think about some of my ancestors who migrated from Iran over into India, and then...
1: How long ago are we talking about?
0: Uh, centuries, okay. and um, then more recently of, the, uh, of, of my family who migrated from India to Pakistan after the partition, and then of my parents migrating from Pakistan to, to rural Pennsylvania typical okay. trajectory. Yeah, so it's, it's that kind of movement across entirely different contexts and at every step uh, involving mixing and mingling and, and, and changing. Uh, that's the kind of thing that constitutes our identities. And what, what I think is so, um, the reason I'm really cautious about retaining the word identity is that it doesn't get taken, uh, it doesn't get understood in terms of this dynamic kind of process of movement and transformation it gets understood as a fixed stable thing my essence what's really inside me uh, and and that uh, that um, hides this kind of movement which I think is really constitutive of who we are
1: it's interesting though because you talk about how your identity was either I don't know if it's changed the way you saw it was changed the way other people saw it was changed on 9-11 mm-hmm. um, and Right. I understand what you're saying about identity being this kind of false construct of a, of a permanent thing and it's not dynamic, but you also recognize that the way you are seen, right, is not fully up to you, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're walking down the street, you're seen a certain way. So how do you balance both acknowledging the way that affects your life uh, with, with looking at identity uh, in the way that you really see it, which is not the way that it's used? Term. yeah
0: well I mean that's part of that kind of fixing of identity which is that after 9-11 you know people looked at me and thought like there's like a Muslim and that's like a threat to homeland security and everything got kind of like reduced to that all the other things you know it didn't matter that I was like into punk music or drank alcohol or ate bacon right. it just got fixed in terms of the specific political context uh, and uh, I think that um, defending people from that kind of racist uh, uh, imposition of identity um, doesn't have to mean accepting that kind of fixed idea of identity.
1: Did it create a sense of solidarity, though, for you, between someone like you, a secular punk music listening to bacon-consuming person, and someone who is, is religious and Muslim? Given that the world, in other words, you know, how after 9-11, right, there were attacks on on Sikhs yeah, yeah, um, yeah. or on Hindus. And of course, you know, who have, not that it would be okay to attack a Muslim, but even within their racist view, it was just off. You know, even within the racist project, it wasn't the right demographic. Yes,
0: that's right. That Um, was common then, yes.
1: Which, does that create an identity too? Like when you're subjected to the same things, even though you're different, does that create some kind of uh, solidarity, cohesion? It can,
0: yeah. Though I mean, I never, um, I never really uh, got interested in religion. Right. So <laughs> no. Right. It didn't. But yeah. But as you point out, the people from completely different religions got associated with like the Islamic threat, uh, even though I mean, if, in in India, obviously they're like. Really if only they confuse those two <laughs> yeah. groups, right? So, um, but but for me, it was more about. Solidarity with um, the tradition in the United States of fighting racism—that's when that really became meaningful to me, and that was something that was uh, largely part of the Black liberation movement, and that that th- that really was meaningful to me in that context. And one one figure who uh, I think I connected with at the level of uh, my Islamic background, this mm. the the background of Islamic culture, was Malcolm X. You know. Uh, because he was a, a, a part of the black liberation struggle, and for him, Islam became a way of, uh, this was at the end of his life, though there are traces of it before, Islam became a way of connecting with uh, the Arab world and with, uh, once again, making that internationalist kind of politics.
1: Um, at, did your did 9-11 politicize you? Were you already political and politicized in the way that you are right now? or uh,
0: I was sort of politicized um, just by um, by going back and forth between the United States and Pakistan and seeing just the scale of um, inequality of wealth that exists in the world and the level of poverty that existed there um, alongside globally um, a level of wealth that would make it possible to eradicate poverty. Right and that's what first, th- that was the basic underlying idea for me uh, getting politicized. But then 9-11 really, I sort of really got thrown into it just because it was clear um, how narrow the understanding of politics was of the people around me um, who got swept up in kind of patriotism and uh, I were really ready to get on board with the war on terror and I knew that there's like a whole rest of the world out there where people don't see it that way, where people even think of the United States as a terrorist kind of uh, uh, entity. Right. And um, so that, that really made me dive in and I, I read all the Chomsky I could find in the bookstore. That was a time when you had to go to the bookstore to find this stuff and like they have like two books by Chomsky and so I, you know, I read what I could.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about how the way identity politics is used today Uh, is actually, goes in the op, is diametrically opposed to the way identity politics was intended to, uh, the the purpose identity politics was intended to serve by the people who started using that. So not just in the theory, but in kind of in the real world and in in practice.
0: Yeah, well one thing is that um, uh, identities get separated and get represented as having their own separate and irreconcilable interests. And so you lose the idea that there can be a a politics which is about everybody's emancipation. And you lose the idea that there's a way that everyone can get involved. Um, And one thing that you encounter, especially if you're an activist, you're part of organizing scenarios, they could be, you know, a range of things. Um, One thing you encounter is the idea that only certain people who are in the most marginal positions should speak or have a right to speak about the issue that supposedly is um, um, uh, completely manifested by their identity. Um, You get the kind of logic of the laundry list, which, you know, when when people use the word intersectionality now, it's also kind of been turned upside down, because it's instead of of being a way of recognizing that um, one, I mean, intersectionality comes out of legal studies. Yeah, and so it's, and Kimberly Crenshaw proposed this, that if you have an anti-discrimination lawsuit in which someone says, well, I was discriminated against because I'm a black woman, then the judge responds, well, you have to pick. Right, either, either you were discriminated against because you were black or you were discriminated against because you're a woman. So intersectionality is the idea of saying, no, there's an intersection yeah. of these things and you have to describe the you whole really thing. You really can have it all, women. Wean <laughs> in. Right. But... Uh, Now, when people talk about intersectionality, it's more about making the laundry list, which is to say like, you know, as a, and I'm not going to list the things because then it will come off as offensive, but you you, you list... You could do your own stuff. As My own stuff. As a um, bacon-eating, Muslim, South Asian, um, uh, heavy metal interested. Uh, person, right. um, uh, I don't think that this movement speaks for me. So I think that we should um, we should have it split up. I don't think this
1: bacon tastes very good.
0: Yeah, well, that's rare. That that's a rare. Uh,
1: no pun intended.
0: <laughs> there you go. Wow, that was a beautiful moment. I <laughs> yeah. would have thunk it.
1: Um, so the idea is that you your politics are just informed by your identity, exactly. right? So you can only speak about something if. Um, if you're a member of the group that's being affected. Which, exactly. yeah,
0: And uh, that, that means you can't have coalitions the way that the Kambahee River Collective did. And so they, uh, when you read these recent interviews that Kianga Yamada-Taylor did with them, uh, they, they're really clear about this. They say, like, we, we, d- we never wanted this to be a way of just saying we only work on stuff that's related to me, and if you're right. not like me, I don't want to be involved with you. Uh, and unfortunately, that's something that uh, happens uh, really often now and under the name of identity politics.
1: Yeah, and there's a real emphasis on the individual over mm-hmm. the collective or the universal. And You talk yeah. about universality. Yeah. But um, that's something I think we really see where people's kind of individual identity are, identities are the, the canvas upon which identity politics is painted. I had to-sorry, I had to finish that uh, (laughs) metaphor. Uh, I'm looking for the place where you talk-it's a really great quote about the-oh, yes. You write write about Huey Newton, Huey P, P. Newton, and you say, but what mattered the most to me was that Newton did not stop with his own identity. His experience led him beyond himself to take up a politics based on solidarity with Cuba, China, Palestine, and Vietnam. His example corroborated the Communist Manifesto, the vast poverty I had witnessed in Pakistan, and the long history of racial oppression that echoed into present-day Pennsylvania went hand in hand. Any solution would have to confront them both. The insights of this brilliant thinker, Karl Marx, did not belong to Europe. They belonged to the whole world, to everyone who fought against injustice. They had been refined and developed in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, even here in the belly of the beast, amid the acid and bile of patriotism and evangelism. Evangel-, evangelicism. evangel- evan- Evangelicism is that it, yeah. Black Americans had shown that this legacy could not be geographically confined. Confined, excuse me. Um, so yeah, th- this paragraph has two makes two really important points. One of is that there's a you know individual liberation is not as can be just an individual liberation. It's not necessarily political. Um, and in fact, the focus on individual liberation can take away from a more universal political project. And also the idea that there's something very infantilizing uh, and fetishizing about the idea that you know Marx, Marx and Marxism is the realm of, of white men. And mm-hmm. uh, essential, it's very essentializing, right? Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't resonate with people of color. I mean, first of all, look at Castro and look at Mao, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but those are two ideas that I think has, have really um, permeated politics
0: yeah, since, and well, election, since 2016 when, especially. When, when um, a politics around race and gender becomes reduced to individuals, that means it becomes about the advancement of individuals, uh, you know, sort of in the American dream of social mobility. And that is not a politics which is about overcoming the whatever kind of oppression is experienced by the majority of people who uh, fall under what I, whatever identity category this social climber has. Uh, and so what you get is uh, uh, elite figures who uh, claim that they're fighting against racism or fighting against sexism uh, when actually what they're doing is only in the interests of a very small minority of people who, are, who have gained entry into the, uh, the the wealthiest and most powerful uh, minority of the population,
1: right? Um, and it further like legitimizes that system, right, by suggesting that look, we can overcome these barriers, but and,
0: and they claim, look, we're doing, uh, we're continuing the legacy, we're you know we're continuing what the civil rights movement right. accomplished, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you're really not, because you're really leaving behind most of the people that the civil rights movement and any other liberation movement uh was trying to fight for
1: right like the poor people's (laughs) exactly uh campaign exactly which they're reviving now Mm -hmm. with um reverend William barber Barber, yeah yeah who i'd love to have on the show if you're watching um (laughs) there's this other really scary idea oh sorry before we go there can you talk about um in terms of erasure you have this irony where people who claim to really respect identity and identity politics they also engage in quite a bit of erasure. Uh, in fact, I think, how, how long have you been white according to these people?
0: Uh, yeah, I've been white since, uh, well, I've, I'm often converted into white in uh, particular social situations in which white people have assumed that um, uh, anyone associating with them must be white because whiteness is like the, uh, the basic minimum requirement for entry into the club. Um, <coughs> And that's weird, Uh, and it it always reminds me of the comment, which I quote, of Joe Biden about Obama. This gaffe he made. He said, "One of his many gaffes." Yeah, that uh, Obama's so clean and articulate, right? Right. And so this is like what white people tend to think. Uh, To be
1: fair to Joe Biden, he's (coughs) very equal opportunity in his offensive gaffes. You know, he (laughs) covers all demographics. So shout out to him for for that. Right.
0: Uh, But I think really there was something. Uh, much more drastic that happened with the 2016 primaries, which was the, because of the polarization between, uh, and I'm talking like now about like a kind of ideological polarization. I'm not talking about policies and all kinds of details that people could quibble about. But the ideological polarization between the Sanders and Clinton kind of platforms was one in which it was assumed that if you support the kind of Um, uh, efforts against economic inequality that Sanders really represented that you had to be a white Bernie bro, right? And uh, you know I was not uh, heavily involved in the Bernie campaign. I thought it was a real step forward because it introduced a lot of young people to a different way of thinking about politics and it mobilized a lot of people um, to kind of uh, change the political discourse and change Uh, the structure that we have in our two-party system. And
1: criticize capitalism.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So I think that was a real step forward. Uh, And uh, the Democratic Party elite figured out a really effective way to suppress that. And that way was to say that if you um, align yourself with this in any way, you are a white Bernie bro and you um, you are ignoring... Problems of race and gender,
1: right? You're not and, centering yeah. women, people of color, LGBTQ people, as if economic <clears throat> exploitation isn't like you were saying in the beginning, with uh, you know overlapping identities and intersectionalism and and the in, impossibility of separating class uh, class and race. Like if you understand how racism works, you get that economics exploitation is that much worse for people of color, Yeah. right? Like that is where racism shows up yes. a lot, is in yes. class.
0: Yes, and that's what happens when you shift the perspective away from the individual and individual advancement, and then you realize that um, there are very large populations of people of color who, whose um, most pressing needs have to do with restoring public works, um, with overcoming um, uh, precarity of labor, with overcoming extremely low wages, with getting access to health care. Right. These are issues that really matter for people of
1: color. Right, so universal <laughs> programs, ironically, are are the most um, disproportionately affect people of color, right? So the Fight for 15, that's mostly yeah. women and people of color. Yeah. So when, when people try to present that as kind of um, privileging economics over race, it doesn't even do that. Like, regardless of your feelings about that or your thoughts about that, it doesn't even function that way. Yeah. So if you care about addressing problems, um, forget strategy for a second and organizing and coalitions, but if you actually want these problems to be addressed, you want to support these universal programs.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it. it we have to say that Strategy matters in the sense that you have to make sure that your messaging is getting that out. Yeah. And so if, if, if you have white socialists and so on who are tone deaf right, to, these, of course. to these things and who don't um, uh, try to highlight the tradition that we've had in the United States of people of color fighting for economic, uh, economic equality. Um, that's a real error, yeah. Because you have to be able to fight against this thr- this this uh, attempt to suppress right. You're and walking into their trap. You're like exactly. doing their work for them. Exactly.
1: Um, but also <clears> on the <throat> other side of it, you have strategy in terms of uh, when you have universal programs, you are able to bring in people who may have resentments and uh, racial, you know, racist resentments, right? You also make the programs that much more that much less vulnerable to being cut. You know, I always think of like how Newt Gingrich didn't talk about Social Security queens, although he wanted to cut it. He talked about welfare queens, um, and mm-hmm. it's a way to again all these people who who are who use identity politics as a term really in theory want to defeat Donald Trump. Yeah. And how do you think you do that?
0: Yeah. yeah. You.
1: It's like this refusal to deal with deplorables or undesirables yeah. is so counterproductive, even if you don't care about these people. You could think that, you know, white workers are um, the wretched of the earth, you could have no sympathy, you could have all sorts of classist, you know, ideas about them, you still in theory want them to vote for the non-Trump person. Yeah,
0: and the thing is, a lot of them don't vote, and uh, the white people who voted for Trump often were people who had higher incomes. Uh, It's it's a real fallacy that we've had in this country that uh, uh, working class people who are white uh, have inherently conservative politics. I mean, they, th- historically they've tended to vote for Democrats and rich people historically have tended uh, to vote for uh, Republicans. It's a, it, it gets muddled in the South, right It gets muddled it in places it, yeah. where there's still the legacy of um, legal segregation and where the poverty of the whole state, Sort of scrambles the political uh, terms, but um, yeah. But the, the there's a there's a a large there, there's a diverse working class. There's a highly diverse working class which is disaffected because they think politics don't represent them. Politicians don't represent them. And if you want to re- if you want to defeat Trump, you have to reach the whole range of them, okay. uh, and uh, that means a, a a whole range of programs that uh deal with their with their immediate needs
1: right and there is this weird false dichotomy as if doing something that's universal somehow throws certain communities under the bus yeah and it's the opposite yeah yeah um is. and it's a way of kind of preventing division and and um stig- stigmatization right you no longer see people as receiving special treatment right um what programs, by the way, do you think are, do you think any programs that are are, re, are racially targeted or ethnically targeted or gender targeted, whatever the term is, are any of those necessary? Are what are, th- are there any things that class, more universal-based programs don't address?
0: Yeah, I mean, you have to, I, I don't think in terms of policy. I think in terms of movements. Mm. And I think, you know, for example, when you've, if, When you've got a union movement, when you've got a labor movement and you've got a union at a particular workplace, it has to take up problems of discrimination that are racial and sexual. You know, the the union's role is to represent the the people who are being not only exploited but also discriminated against. And so uh, that's about um, having a broad perspective and... uh, um, I, I, yeah, I, so I, I think I, I think in terms of movements in yeah. that way. Focus yeah,
1: focus or, or um, orientations, but not policy per se. Yeah. But right, so a perfect example is sexual harassment yeah. in the labor movement, right? That's one yeah. of the, a- Alex Press, I've interviewed her about this and spoken to her about it, and one of the biggest, most pressing issues for lots of workers is um, harassment that they yes. face. Yes, yes. So you can't really, if you want to have a uh, a real, you know, strong labor movement, you can't present those issues as being on the, on the sidelines or unrelated to class?
0: Yeah, I mean, as early as the 19th uh, century, the late 19th century, when you started to get um, uh, a lot of uh, unions that were, a lot of them were connected to the socialist movement in Germany, um, and you can read about this in one of the viewpoint issues, the viewpoint issue 5, in which uh, my co-editor and I wrote an introduction in which we talk about this. Um, even in this classical kind of period of socialism and uh, the rise of trade unions, that you had um, unions like the Union of Textile Workers, who were mostly women, right. and uh, they were constantly going on strike against harassment by the manager, and it wasn't. I mean, <laughs> there 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 was no conception that that's different. Like they they went on strike. Um, so that people, so so that when a worker got pregnant, she didn't have to keep coming in. I mean, oh, yeah. those th- right. th- those they they actually saw those as economic demands. Right. They and they weren't all separate. Yeah, of course, demands. right. Yeah, yeah, so
1: fascinating. Or like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, right, yeah. which happened here, where majority, I mean, it was almost all women, largely yeah. immigrant, um, and they didn't have they were locked into this factory, and there's a fire, and.
0: And this is a big there, misconception, you know. by the way, about. Uh, Karl Marx's Capital. The book Capital um, has a lot of... real uh, uh, beach read,
1: by the way, <laughs> page turner. It,
0: it has a lot of um, kind of accounts of the class struggles in factories and most of those workers in this period are women and children. And so he's actually talking about women. So you're saying uh, one of
1: the myths is that he wasn't speaking to yeah. the experiences or realities of women and children.
0: Exactly. Uh, that that just doesn't correspond to what right. was actually happening in Industrial Revolution England, which he was describing.
1: And he also, I mean, so right. So there's an inherent gender aspect to the labor discussion, but he also talked about things like the family and and you know marriage, yeah, especially Angles Yeah, Angles. Yeah, yeah, his yeah. sugar daddy. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah that's um, right.
1: There's also this weird thing, there's this this really weird um, takeaway, which is that because there are racists and because white people can be seduced by racism, therefore class-based organizing will not work. And it's like, wait, don't you get it? It's the exact opposite. It's in a vacuum. Like That's why we need to have class-based organizing, because if you don't have it on that, what else do people have to grab onto? It competes directly with it.
0: Well, so the first part of it is that you need to make another political language available, another way of thinking about politics available that isn't right-wing populism. Right. Uh, But then the other thing that you have to do is you have to start to re-educate some white people who just don't get it. Right. And uh, sometimes people who are socialists and who are involved in, you know, um, Bernie-type campaigns forget that part. Yeah. And and if you don't do that part, then people aren't going to listen. I mean, if you 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 have to be able to demonstrate that you are working on these issues because they're not separate.
1: Yeah. And there is a weird empathy that like is there's a lot of empathy among the left or even with liberals there's a lot there's a lot of empathy, but it kind of ends with class. Mm-hmm. Like if you're and I hate saying this because it sounds like I'm being a self-pitying white person, but I have very little in common If anything, I'm like a snob, honestly, if I'm gonna check my privilege. I have very little in common with a coal miner in Kentucky, right? Yeah. But like, there is a lack of empathy towards that person compared to the empathy that we'll see among people towards, let's say, a person of color who is homophobic. And I'm not comparing racism, so a racist um, coal miner Mm -hmm. and, let's say, a homophobic um, Mm -hmm. black person in the Northeast like, I'm not equating those two things, but it is interesting how people have this understanding of access and education and consciousness raising uh, that kind of stops when we're talking about white working class people.
0: Well, I think there's a phenomenon which I find really disgusting, which is of uh, white liberals who are totally woke on questions of race and gender and then are just completely uh, contemptuous and will, uh, you know, uh, use every stereotype about what they think are rednecks yeah. and hicks and- And how you. they
1: deserve to lose their health care. Yeah. Uh, and If they and, voted for Trump, right?
0: Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of, most of them didn't vote for Trump. Sure, right.
1: Uh, and even the ones, I mean, the irony, again, is like, you can have contempt for them. It's not a strategic move yeah. to further alienate these people. Yeah. And, um, again, with messaging, with anti-racist messaging and universal programs, you reach everyone.
0: Yeah. And a lot of those people, you know, are on strike right now. Right. And they've been, and that's, those are transformative experiences. Those right. change the way yeah. people think about politics. That's the time when you can make coalitions. You can, you can start to see uh, people crossing boundaries. Uh, yeah. And so that's, that's another thing. I said I think uh, in terms of movements rather than policy. When you have a movement and you're, you are really uh, dedicated to overcoming racial division in the movement and you're working and and you come up with a demand or a program that is in the interest of a broad range of people people learn to work together people learn to uh, um, understand things from other from other perspectives
1: and the common shared goals yes yeah it's it's again it's like people will often point to the racist practices or the exclusion of the labor movement which existed but we also have examples of really inspiring multiracial organizing from the labor movement, Exactly, Um, but people don't point to that because that doesn't support their thesis that you can't actually use economic kind of campaigns or justice or movements to reach across barriers. And part of that is because
0: these days people barely know what a labor movement is. I mean, such low rates of unionization. Um, propaganda that's been ca- like a, s- a century of propaganda against uh, the very idea of having a union has been very successful. Uh, and so that's, that's part of why people don't know that this is an option, that a union can struggle for racial equality.
1: Right. Um, what about being told you're white on Twitter? You have a twin brother named Shuja Hader, friend of the show, the Katie Halper Show, got to get you on Young Turks. Um, and he is constantly being told he's white. Uh, he's a twin of yours, so yeah. I'm not sure if you guys get the same uh, white diagnosis at the same rates since you're twins, but...
0: Well, I get it less because I spend less time on Twitter, right. which, you know, I try to influence him to do as well. Shuja, this, <laughs>
1: this is an intervention. <laughs>
0: yeah, but... Um,
1: and Shuja's a great writer and uh, writes about similar things, um, and also music, too.
0: Yeah. Um, that's that phenomenon is hard to explain. I mean, if it's just a cynical ploy to discredit us, um, it's a pretty stupid yeah. one because we're obviously not white. Yeah, we have Muslim names, yeah. uh, and so on. Um, if it if it's not a and cynical you're not like ploy,
1: Chechen, Chechen, Chechen yeah, you know, yeah. Muslims or whatever.
0: If it's not a cynical ploy, it's like a <laughs> level it. of delusion that I can't, you know, I yeah. can't really grasp. Uh, I don't know. People are getting so swept up in their, um, um, in trying. I, I, I mean, maybe the explanation is that white people get so devoted to displaying how, how, how woke a- they yeah, are and how allyship. engaged they are yeah. in allyship and identity politics that they f- totally forget. They lose their minds for right. a minute. And they're like, you know, uh, you, you're just another one right, of these yeah. white people who doesn't care. Uh, and they don't even stop to check.
1: Right, yeah hey, Assad hater, you're you're a terrible (laughs) white wasp or something. Um, So, you know, let's just, let's let's come out of the closet here for a second. Um, I was actually thinking about, well, is this good for the Young Turks audience? Um, And then I realized, you know, there's a lot of anti-capitalism out there. It's pretty exciting. We even had Hillary Clinton last week, Hillary Clinton um, speaking at the Shared Value Leadership Summit in New York City. And she was having a chat with Time, Inc. brand CCO, Alan Murray, who asked her if her identifying as a capitalist hurt her. And she said, probably. It's hard to know. But I mean, if you're in the Iowa caucuses and 41 percent of Democrats are socialists or self-described socialists, and I'm asked, are you a capitalist? And I say, yes, but with appropriate regulation and appropriate accountability, you know, that probably gets lost in the, oh, my gosh, she's a capitalist. And um, There, these, you know, a Gallup poll conducted in 2016 found that 55 percent of Americans under 30 have a positive view of socialism. A Harvard University study uh, found that 51 percent of U.S. adults under the age of 30 do not support capitalism. So Uh, I think maybe we're ready to talk about uh, Marxism.
0: Yeah, and I'll add another interesting poll, and I don't remember when this was, but it was a poll about knowledge that American citizens have about the U.S. Constitution, and something like half of the people polled thought that the phrase, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, was in the U.S. Constitution. Of course, it's an old socialist slogan that was used uh, famously by Marx in his critique of the Gotha program. What's um, the what program? Critique of the Gotha program. He, it, it's, what's that? It, it, he took a program that was written by another socialist organization and he scribbled in the margins all of his objections to everything they did and then he put it in his drawer and he just said, okay, I'm not huh. going to cause any trouble.
1: What, what, go like It was G-
0: published later by Engels.
1: Okay. But that's Gotha, like, Gert, like the German? No, G-O-T-H-A. No, not the, okay. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so can you tell us your magazine viewpoint is yeah. a uh, identifies as a, uh, Marxist. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit by the way, happy belated birthday? To, to, to Marx. To Marx May fifth he, yes. he would have been two hundred had yes. his life not been yes. cut short a century ago. Yes. Um, by 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 aging. Um, how did you celebrate?
0: Uh, I celebrated by participating in an amazing initiative that's happening in Seattle called Red May, and this is the second year they've done it. Uh, I was there the first year as well, and uh, they they had this uh, awesome Karl Marx birthday cake with a picture of him, and with some of the... Uh, was it, it gluten-free? F- was it vegan? There, there was a second vegan cake, which had the expanded formula for capital on nice. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that was the celebration, and uh, everybody should take a look at what they're doing in Seattle, Red May. It's a whole month of Marxist and socialist events, and uh, it's amazing that they pulled it off, uh, amazing that they pulled it off a second time. Next year is the uh, anniversary of the Seattle General Strike of 1919, so I expect a lot from them next
1: year. Yeah, you, they really yeah. raised the bar. Yeah. So wait, was, was the slice, was the size of the slice of cake, dependent on each person's hunger. And
0: each person's needs. Yeah, like caloric um, intake. It, it, it was evenly divided and then distributed to those who wanted cake, basically. Oh, and so it's know. universal. It's a yeah. Univer- it's not, not needs-based. But not everybody opted into cake. Ah, you know? uh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. I'm afraid I did, you which did. is, yeah. That's good. You no, know. you got to normalize t- it, yeah, yeah. or
1: else or else cake <laughs> could be slashed. Yeah, yeah. You know, people That's could right. try to get rid of cake. That's right. Um, And so what does being a Marxist mean today?
0: Yeah, well, what what I think um, Marxism means and what I think Karl Marx's contribution was is to present an analysis of what he called the capitalist mode of production and of its contradictions. and he showed that the capitalist mode of production, even when it, it's in a society in which people have rights and they're formally equal, and so we have a constitution and so on, uh, even in that context, the workplace is the site of total tyranny over the workers and uh, it's the site of exploitation. Uh, even if everybody is allowed to uh, own their own commodities and sell them in the market, you know, that's the kind of vision that now gets called neoliberalism, the, the, which, which comes from uh, figures like Hayek and von Mises, the idea that everybody is an entrepreneur, and that's a big part of the American ideology, that we're all entrepreneurs, yeah. but actually, most of us work for a wage, and we work for bosses, and we don't own the things we need to survive, we have to depend on the market to get them, and so we need to work for a wage in order to live. That's the basic structure of capitalism, and it's a tyrannical one, and it's, it's an exploitative one. And so Marx presented an analysis of that, he presented an analysis of why it's constantly going into crisis, and, you know, people uh, find themselves unemployed, businesses go under, this is you know, why people, why there are all these think pieces about Marx after uh, the 2008 crisis where everyone was like, hey, wait, this guy was predicting that these crises were going to happen. But then the, 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 the next important thing about Marx is that he, he thought that it was possible for working people to unite and overthrow this system. And that's what Marxism is, and that's why it, it hasn't lost its relevance today.
1: Lots of people say, um, oh, he was wrong, because look, we don't have international communism. Yeah. Um, and uh, lots of people say he's uh, like there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. uh, and it was Marx's apologist should be red in the face. Very funny. Mm-hmm. The Bicentennial is a man whose ideas killed untold millions. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that Marx was both ineffective yeah. um, and not a good, not very prescient, and not very uh, didn't predict things well, and also right. caused the death of a lot of people. So it's kind of a lose lose. Okay.
0: So two things, first of all, yeah, he was wrong about the tenacity of capitalism. He kept thinking every time there was a crisis, okay, this is it. The revolution's going to happen. Eventually he became a little more sanguine about that, but he's… and Capital, um, his masterwork, you know, Capital Volume 1, which is the only volume he published in his lifetime. Like History uh, of the
1: World, Part 1 by Mel Brooks. Yeah, exactly. The only one exists.
0: Uh, There are two other volumes that Engels put together. But um, he, uh, he wasn't as um, uh, optimistic about the destruction of capitalism and that, but he still was a little bit. There's right. one chapter in which he suggests, hey, this is, gonna, this is just going to happen. But he was aware it's not just going to happen. You know, It isn't just like the, uh, the whole process of history is just going to inevitably right. result in revolution. So he sometimes believed that. And sometimes, you know, in, in in the socialist movement, in the in the labor movement, which were often Identical they were often the same thing It was a useful kind of thing to say hey history's on our side. Yeah morale, This system good, can't last. Boosted, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So that's kind of why it was that kind of prediction was often there, but capitalism has lasted longer It's changed in various ways and Marxists have to take account of that and have to study that um, the other part about he's responsible for so many deaths Um, it's just a silly claim because first of all i mean let's think about the actual revolutions that happened in the 20th century the first thing we have to note about them is that they overthrew centuries-old forms of oppression Uh, czarism in russia and uh, colonialism in china uh, vietnam latin america africa these were all movements that took up Marxism as their uh, theory of liberation, and they overthrew systems that had resulted in uh, a, a scale of death that we can barely even count now. Actually,
1: nobody ever died. They were all immortal <laughs> right. before communism, right. before Karl yeah. Marx's ideology, yeah. But but people,
0: I mean, the, this is a scale of death people barely even count. And you know, actually, there's, uh, you know, the economist Amartya Sen, he did a comparative yeah. study. of. Uh, the famines of the great, great Leap Forward in China, you know, which was Mao's program uh, in the 50s, and he compared it to India, and he said, like, look, a lot of people died in the Great Leap Forward. It was, it was disastrous. Uh, but something like every eight years, peop- the same wow. n- number of people die in India just because of the poverty that uh, happens uh, from capitalism. Without yeah. communism. Yeah. Right.
1: Um, and he's not just talking about Kerala, I assume, no, communist. Yeah,
0: stuff. yeah. But, um, th- and th- the other thing to note is that while these revolutions were successful in overthrowing old forms uh, of oppression, they were not successful in establishing new socialist societies. Um, uh, they tried, um, and uh, in many cases, they got themselves into a lot of trouble. They weren't able to figure out how to, basically, th- th- the core problem was. Once you overthrow the existing state, uh, what do you do? How do you now like build a society? How do you now uh, take over the functions that the previous state had? And in most cases, the only institution they had to take over was the Communist Party. And the party often had, because it existed in conditions of uh, total state repression, civil war, colonization, they often had really rigid hierarchical structures and they were accustomed to dealing with things through methods of violence because that's the environment that they, uh, right. they, they emerged in. So that's kind of, uh, that's my, under- my uh, analysis of why these uh, uh, societies were authoritarian and weren't able to establish a new kind of society that they had hoped for.
1: And you don't have to be communist to be authoritarian, right? We have tons of
0: not at uh, all governments, not at and all. movements,
1: and ideologies that are authoritarian and not communist. Yes. So wanted to know if you could dis- define some terms. Oh yeah, um, I Could talk call this section everything you ever wanted to know about uh, leftism, but we're afraid to ask. Okay. Neoliberalism. Take. That's a b- one that people really want to know about.
0: Oh okay. I mean neoliberalism is a response to the fact that uh, the the existing system of capitalism that existed from after the Great Depression up through the 1970s went into crisis and that was a a particular period in the history of capitalism in which there was an unprecedented level of prosperity and there were very strong labor movements and so labor was able to demand uh, a bigger share of an increasing pie and uh, part of the prosperity of this period uh, uh, was the result of Keynesian policies, which, in which the state, uh, um, t- the the state really regulated industry, made big investments in public works programs, and there was a kind of a uh, a compact, kind of an agreement between management and labor to. Um, Uh, in the service of development so worker
1: like the middle class had more money and then they would spend more money invest in the economy
0: yeah and you had a rising standard of living okay Uh, and so that was a that was a short period in the history of capitalism there's no like typical way that capitalism operates in industrial revolution England when when Marx was writing it was totally different Uh, and then during the depression it was totally different but uh, This period entered into crisis in the 1970s. There are all kinds of reasons why. Um, Part of it has to do with international competition, the emergence of Japan and Germany as new competitors for the United States. So neoliberalism was the response in which um, there there was an effort to completely destroy and smash the power of organized labor and fragment the working class.
1: Thank you so much again, Assad, for coming on the show. I just want to let people know about two events that are happening. One is on May 10th. That is at McNally Jackson for our New York City viewers or New Jersey, Tri-State area viewers. McNally Jackson, the, the bookstore. And then on May 6th, 15th. May 15th. And then on May 15th, there's an event at Verso Books in Brooklyn, and I'll be part of that. So if you got to choose between those two, I think you know which one <laughs> you've got to choose. Thanks so much, TYT viewers, for watching. I'm Katie Halper.
0: If you like the interview that you just watched, I got great news for you. If you become a Young Turks member, you can watch them live as they happen. Only the members get that. You also get Young Turks live. You also get Aggressive Progressive live and Old School live. Everything is available for the members and commercial free. tytnetwork.com slash join.